0: It's a great privilege to be with you here this morning. It's always a privilege at any time in any country in the world to meet with God's people to offer him the praise and the worship that's due to his name. There are several reasons why it's especially good for me to to be here in this part of the country. I have been in full-time Christian preaching now for 54 years. I come from the Channel Islands and it was to the West Country actually to a little village called Western Supermare, which you may have heard, uh, that I came to live for the first ten years of my time here on the mainland. So it's always good to come back to the West Country. Uh, Secondly, it's a privilege to accept the invitation of your Pastor Mackey this morning, because of all the missionary interests I have in various parts of the world, uh, there's none that is more precious and vibrant to me than my fairly recent interest within the last 10 years, that is, in uh, Albania. I've had the privilege of preaching there a number of times and greatly to my surprise, beginning only about uh, six or eight years ago, some 10 10 books of mine, including the very largest, a book called Does God Believe an Atheist, which runs to nearly 700 pages, uh, has been translated uh, and is being used widely in Albania. So that gives me a very... Uh, special delight to be here. Uh, uh, the third is uh, that I, within the past 18 months, uh, married a, a lady who, like me, had been bereaved within the previous six or so years. Uh, her name was Pam Robertson, and she'd been, on the, she'd been the chair of the Board of Euroevangelism, which is involved in all that work in uh, Eastern Europe. So we were married uh, in the early part of last year, And so I've got a special interest in anything uh, that's involved in the ministry from this country to uh, that part of uh, the European continent. And just a few weeks ago, we had Teddy and Didi Operanov in our home uh, talking about the work in Romania. He came to my own home church uh, on that Sunday evening and shared something uh, there of his work in that part of the world. And we hope to be sharing with them in their country fairly soon, so for all of those reasons, I mean as many reasons as it would take a whole sermon to tell you about, it's just a very special joy uh, to be here with you this morning. And as uh, your pastor has mentioned, at the very end of the service, so that there can be no complication and forgetting, uh, I will be given the opportunity to mention I think it's about half a dozen uh, quite small titles of mine that are available to you uh, after the service and by an arrangement with the publishers. Uh, they're available at a very large discount. I know that doesn't interest people in Bristol, but I thought I'd just mention it anyway, that they are heavily discounted. And we'll get on to all of that at the end of the service. Now, if you have a Bible with me, turn with me to uh, the book of Hebrews. easy to find because it's a very large book towards the end of the the New Testament. And having uh, found the book of Hebrews... Let me tell you that we're not going to touch it this morning. Uh, It was just a trick on my part to get you to turn up the book of Philemon, which only takes about a page and a half, and which you might take 20 minutes to find. So I thought if I got you onto Hebrews, you just turn back one page, and there is the book of Philemon. Uh, Letters are wonderful things, especially in this, even in this age of uh, social media, there's something very, very special not an email, not a phone call, nothing equals the thud of an envelope uh, inside your hall with a stamp. Do you remember stamps? A stamp, um, it's not a circular, it's not one of those love letters from HMRC or anything like that. Uh, this is a personal letter to you. And I, I have to confess, uh, there is a, there's a particular... Thrill may be too strong a word, but there's something very special about zipping open that envelope and saying, somebody has written a letter to me. And so you read this letter. Well, we have before us here a letter. And some letters we keep for a very long time. They mean something to us. I could still take you, because I have it at home, a letter from the Guernsey Civil Service from 1948... That's the early part of the last century, by the way, uh, telling me that I've been appointed to the Guernsey Civil Service and telling me to report at a certain office on a certain day. And that letter is still very precious to me, and I still have it there at home. Well, here's a letter that's been around for 2,000 years. And God intended it to be very special to us, which is why in his sovereign overruling, it has been included in what we call the Bible, which, as you know, is not a, is not a book, but it is 66 books uh, written, the last part of it, about 2,000 years ago. I'm going to read the letter all through. And as I do, I want you to just try to be thinking, what is this all about? Then when I've done that, we'll go back and explain at least part of it. And maybe if I feel we have time, and we do have time, you look worried. We do have time uh, to focus especially on two verses which have an extraordinary message by implication. But here it is. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love and faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful, both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner for Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Well, that's a letter. What do you make of it? Let me turn the background. Paul, the Apostle Paul, knew a man called Philemon, we can assume somewhere in the range of middle class, who owned a slave called Onesimus. Very interesting name for a slave. The word means useful. But in fact, if ever somebody was badly named or became badly named, it was Onesimus because far from being useful, he was useless. And there's a little play on words there at one point in the letter. In fact, he was so useless, he ran away. Ran away from uh, Philemon, and uh, it would seem, probably took some of Philemon's property with him. And I'll mention that again in a moment. Now just imagine, here is a slave in the first century, a runaway slave, If he had been recognized as such anywhere in that culture, he would have been branded in the forehead with a red-hot iron so that he would never be able again to escape the fact that he was in the very dregs of society. Now, use your imagination. Here is a runaway slave at the very bottom of the social heap, running away from his owner. Where would he go? Would he go to a small village where everybody knew everybody else? And he would instantly be recognised. Well, of course not. He would go to a large city. Uh, We might even say he wouldn't go to Nailsea, he'd go to Bristol instead. Less chance of being recognised. In other words, he not only wanted to be Onesimus, he wanted to be anonymous. And that was the best way of doing it. And so what did he do? Smart Alec he was. He went to Rome. Largest city in the world. Masses of people, no chance of him being recognized there. He could quietly slip away and be anonymous for the rest of his life. But God had other plans. And God, of all people, brought him into touch with the Apostle Paul, who happened to be in Rome at that time, almost certainly under house arrest. But somehow or another, Philemon, uh, excuse me, Onesimus, was brought into touch With the Apostle Paul there, under house arrest in Rome, and it seems fairly clear from the letter uh, that the Apostle Paul led him to faith in Christ. So this letter is, in fact, returning a runaway slave, now sound in wind and limb, and converted into the bargain, and sending him back to his rightful owner. Now that's the that's the human purpose of the letter. But there has to be a divine purpose in it, because in God's economy and wisdom, it is preserved for us as part of what Peter calls the living and enduring word of God. Not a great theological treatise uh, like Romans, but there is some wonderful truth in it, at least by implication. Turn with me to uh, verse 17, verses 17 and 18. We're not going to major here, but I just want to mention this uh, these verses to you. If you consider me a partner, and the word partner is based on the Greek from which from which we get the word fellowship, if we really are in fellowship with each other, welcome him as you would welcome me. That's the first thing. And then secondly, if he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this one with my own hand. I will pay it back. And then I think, rather cutely, Paul says, I won't even mention the fact that you owe me your own life. Which seems to me to be saying, and by the way, I led you to the Lord too. So here's the thing. Paul is saying two things. Let me take the second one first. If he owes you anything, tell me about it, I'll pay it back. And the second, although first in the order in which it comes here, Welcome him as you would welcome me. When the front door knocks and you open it and you see Onesimus there, your first thought are, I'm going to kill you. Look, welcome him as if you would welcome me. When that door is knocked and you open it and Onesimus is there, this useless runaway slave, imagine that it's me. How would you welcome Me, if I were to be there. And we don't have to be told. He would wrap his arms around him, welcome him, express his love toward him, and receive him into his home. There is a wonderful illustration here of a central truth of the Christian faith. Technically, it goes under the word of imputation. But let me explain that. When a person becomes a Christian, all of that person's sin is debited to the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus is credited to the Christian. Do you see that? That's what we call imputation. The the believer's sin is imputed to Jesus and Jesus' righteousness, his perfection... His utter obedience to the law of God is imputed to the Christian. So that if you become a Christian, God looks upon you as he looks upon Jesus and sees you being perfect. So that when, as it were, you knock on the door of heaven, you will be received as if it was Jesus himself returning to glory. With all of your sin past present, and future as we stand here this morning, imputed to Jesus and dealt with by him in his death on the cross. Well, I'm glad I'm standing up as I share that with you, because if I was sitting down, I think I'd need to stand up. Uh, That is so, to me, that is exciting. That is hugely exciting. That is why Paul is able to write to the Philippians and among them to others to say the same thing, that he is going to be received in glory, not trusting in, as he puts it, my own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. Well, that's a massive theological message, I think, beautifully illustrated here. But I want instead to turn to the first, well, just the first couple of verses of this uh, epistle, which is really just the greeting. It's not, it's not the message itself. It's the, an expansion of we would... What we would put if we wrote a letter and started Dear Fred, Uh, well, it's a rather expanded version of it here, and Paul mentions various people in the uh, introduction. And in it, he tells us uh, six ways of describing a Christian. Just follow the text with me. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul was a prisoner, uh, but he doesn't say I'm a prisoner of the Jews because they betrayed me doesn't say I'm a prisoner of the Romans, because, and they were the ones who had captured him uh, and put him, we believe, under house arrest there in Rome. He says a prisoner of Christ Jesus. When I lived in Guernsey, when I joined the civil service after leaving school, one of my first jobs was to be the secretary of the States of Guernsey Prison Board. So as my friends liked to say, usually without explanation, Uh, John's been in and out of prison for years. Uh, But that was part of my job. They didn't like to say that. Um, So I knew, I, I got the general picture of what it was to be a prisoner. Because of something wrong that these men had done, for a certain period of life, the control of their life had been handed over to others. And that, of course, personalised in the prison governor whose name, by the way, was Thatcher, but we won't go into that. Um, so here they were. They had, because of wrong they had done, they would surrendered the control of their life, every day of it, morning, noon and night, into the hands of someone else. And Paul says, I'm a prisoner. But I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He, ha- he has, as it were, captured me and imprison me within the good purposes of his will. So that every day I can say, um, my life is not my own. It's not for me to make autonomous decisions as to what to do, where to go, what to spend, how to use my time. To begin with, I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. There was a very well-known speaker at the Keswick Convention called Bishop Taylor Smith, A very large framed man, I understand. And I've also been told that he used to wake up in the morning, uh, spread himself out on his bed and say, Good morning, Lord. Here I am. Help yourself. That's great. Not quite sure that I can see myself doing that. uh, But the Spirit is absolutely perfect. This is a new day. Help yourself. As Pam and I pray every morning and commit the day to the Lord, that's essentially what we do. We are prisoners of Jesus Christ. You are in charge of our lives. You do with us today what we want to do. And sometimes the days look dreadfully dull. Uh, not many of them do, I can tell you. We were telling Maggie um, and Ruth last night, they said, well, how long have you been married now? And we said, well, oh, it's all of 16 months. Uh, do you still do a lot of traveling? And Pam jumped in and said, yes, we've flown 26 times in the last 16 months. What's the next question? So it's, but there are days when we're simply at home, And we say, now, there are all sorts of commonplace bits and pieces to do. And lots of things we don't know that will present themselves to us that day. But we begin, as it were, by acknowledging we're the prisoners of Jesus Christ. And we've used the phrase again and again, all we want to do today, the things that we know we have to do, the practical things, and things we don't yet know what we have to do, we want to do that which is in your good and pleasing and perfect will. So becoming a Christian is much more than raising a hand, walking to the front, signing a dotted line, and quote, making a decision. It's about surrendering one's life to the one who should be our Lord and Saviour. And then he goes on to say, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Remember the story of uh, Paul's conversion? Saul, as he then was, having with him permission from the authorities to arrest Christians wherever he found them, throw them into jail, if necessary, consent to their deaths, as he did to the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And then on the Damascus Road, that astonishing uh, conversion experience, meeting with the risen Christ, and being struck blind, and then being told to go to Damascus to a street called Straight. Scene 2, God speaks to a man called Ananias and says, I want you to go to a street called Straight and meet a man called Paul and I want you to lay hands on him and bless him. And without seeking to exaggerate too much, but getting behind, I'm sure, the spirit of what Ananias said to God, he said, You have to be joking. Don't you know who this guy is? He is a vicious persecutor of the Christian church. And he may well have been able to say, I've got friends of mine who are in prison. I know of people who are buried, dead and buried, because of the activity of this vicious persecutor. He's a terrorist. And you now want me to go to him and lay hands upon him and welcome him. And God said, and I was reading the passage this morning, God said, I've got special purposes for him. You go and do it. And so Ananias goes to Straight Street in Damascus and is introduced to Paul. And the very first thing Ananias says to him is this, Brother Paul, the Lord has sent me. So, the very first recorded word that a Christian said to the converted soul of Tarsus was brother. I hope we've got the, the implication of that. All of Saul's vicious, godless, anti-Christian past was wiped out of the way. You are my brother. And then... Um, differences of age are wiped away. Timothy, my brother. Timothy was probably 40 years younger uh, than the now converted Paul. But that wasn't a barrier. Paul says, no, my, I know he's 40 years my, my junior, but he is my brother. And then, what about uh, Onesimus? Look in verse 16, where Paul says, I'm writing to you on behalf of my brother Onesimus. My brother And here was uh, Paul, raised as Saul, as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, religious-wise, absolutely at the top of the tree. Now he's referring to somebody at the bottom of the gutter, and he says, he's my brother. God has worked a miracle of grace in his heart, just as he's worked a miracle of grace in mine. And there's no distinction between us. Some of you know the amazing story of the mid-century martyrs, Nate Saint and Roger Uderian and Pete Fleming and the others who went out to reach the Alca Indians in Ecuador. And I can still hear the message from the the radio base at Shelmera asking where they were and got no reply. And eventually, of course, all five were found killed on the banks of the Coterae River. And sometime later, some years later, all of those murderous Aukas were converted. And there was a baptismal service held on the very banks of the Kudarai River where Nate Saint and others had been slaughtered. And one of Nate Saint's children, at least one, two, I think, were baptized, the very spot where their father was killed. And the one who conducted the baptismal service was the one who killed their father. Brother, the Lord has sent me. So whoever we are, what part of the social strands we are, we are brothers in Christ, if we are Christians. And then, thirdly, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, Timothy, our brother, and Philemon, our dear friend. Well, that's a very weak translation in the uh, NIV. Beloved is a much better word. And all I want to draw from that for the purposes of time is this, that this word, beloved, is the very word that God used of Jesus Uh, at his baptism and again at his transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And this is my beloved son, hear him. And I can get nothing stronger, more challenging, more eye-popping, heart-stopping than this, that God invites us to use of other Christians the very word that he used of his Son. Beloved. Now, you know, those of us who are British with a few imports, those of us who are British but are pretty, pretty reserved people, you know. The only people I know who would sit in a train for three hours alongside somebody and never say a word to them. Uh, we're kind of very reserved. There's a story I'm tempted and I've yielded to it of, of uh, four groups of two people who were stranded on, on a desert island, two Scots, two English, two Irish and two Welsh, and the two Scots got together and formed a bank. The two Welsh got together and formed a choir. The two Irish got together and started a fight. The two Englishmen did nothing because they hadn't been introduced. Now, we're, we're kind of, we're, I mean, we are very reserved. And we don't go around calling each other beloved. But I've had a number of emails from Greece this week, where Pam and I hope to be uh, preaching quite soon, and every single one of them is addressed to me as beloved brother John. When I've been working in Eastern Europe, in what used to be Czechoslovakia in particular, it was always beloved brother John. Now, okay, we may, the, language may, the language may be a little outside of our cultural norm. Forget about the language. The point is what it means. Do you remember those cartoons? love is... They were wonderful. Hundreds of them. Love is this, love is that. Let me tell you, in biblical terms, what love is. And hear me carefully. Love is, or love means, whatever a person says about you, whatever a person does about you, however ugly they might be as far as you are concerned, whatever harm they might do you, are you ready? You will act and speak to and about them, in ways deliberately calculated to bring about their greatest blessing and their highest good. There's a word for that. Wow. And isn't that exactly what God did for us? While we were enemies, Christ died for us. When there wasn't a good thing to be said for us, a good word to be said for us, Jesus died for us deliberately went out of his way, oh, how true those words are, came from heaven to earth, went out of his way deliberately to do for us that which was deliberately calculated for our greatest blessing and our highest good. That's what love is. That's what love is. Instead of which somebody says something unhelpful, harmful about us, we make sure that we say something harmful about them. Or we justify ourselves, or in some other way, we make a response to which love uh, is not the appropriate description. well, and fourthly, to our, uh, excuse me, to Philemon, our dear friend, and fellow worker, well, what an unglamorous word that is! A Christian is a worker. I sometimes think that some churches are a bit like airplanes, in which I seem to spend so much of my life. You know, 5% of those on board are crew, and the rest are passengers. I think that's a dreadful situation for any church to be in. I think any member of a church ought to be a member of the crew. And so, let me be direct. If you're a member of Cairns Road Baptist Church here, are you a member of the crew, or are you just a passenger? And if you say, well, I'm here every Sunday, well, big deal, uh, where else would you be? Uh, But are you a member of the crew? What is it that you are doing, that you are seeking to do, that you are pledged to do, that you are committed to do for the benefit of the ministry of this church? And if you say, you know, I'm not sure that I'm doing anything. Well, here's my suggestion. That you go to Mackey and say, you know, I was really struck by that. I'm not really a member of the crew. I want you to give me something to do that will make a positive contribution to the ongoing work of this church. Now, the uh, next thing you do is get some salvolatil and get him up off the ground because he's fainted. Uh, but once you've done that, uh, do whatever it is he gives you to do. A soldier, a Christian, is a, is a worker. Spurgeon used to say, it's a crime for man to let grass grow under his feet without turning it into hay. And then fifthly, to archipus our fellow soldier. Well, that's an appropriate word too. A Christian is a soldier. Yes, we have on our side the, the holy Trinity of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We have against us the unholy Trinity of the world, the flesh and the devil. And it was never promised that the Christian life would be easy, and in fact, it's hugely difficult, and it's a fight. We have to battle, especially in the culture in which we live today. We have to battle constantly. Uh, William Brimshaw, one of my favourite people of that particular century, said, I expect to lay down my sword and my life together. But we love to do, in a crisis, what God says can only be done in a process, and the other way around. There are so many people who are hoping that they'll become Christians by a a long process of getting a little bit better and God is going to grade them on a curve and eventually they'll be good enough. Whereas God says that becoming a Christian is a crisis. Unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And the other side of the coin is this. There are so many Christians who are trying to achieve... In a crisis, what God says is only going to happen in a process. And I mean by that holiness or sanctification or becoming more and more like Christ. And so we have people and countless numbers of them all over the world who are looking for that, quote, second blessing, special experience, something they can do, a button they can press, something they can click, God to move in in the course of a service and in one moment lift them from, you know, the third division to the premiership of Christian living and all of those troubles will be passed and they'll be living in a new dimension altogether. My friends, it ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen because that's not the way it happens. It is a constant, ongoing, day by day, fighting against the world, the flesh and the devil and looking for the Lord to enable us to grow more and more like Christ day by day. And then finally, and what an anticlimax it seems, and to the church that meets in your home. Well, the church, I mean, these... A Dramatic words, prisoner, brother, friend, worker, soldier. And church? Well, what's challenging about that? Well, church is not a Christian word at all. The word is ecclesia, in which you get ecclesiastic and all the rest of it. It means being called out from a, a common crowd, separated for a specific purpose. And that is what we are. If we are the church... We have been called out from the rest of humanity for a very special purpose. Nobody seems to me has put it better uh, than the great John Newton who once said, Jesus has gone away into heaven with our nature to represent us there. And he's left us here on earth with his nature to represent him here. And that's what we're called to do. We're to shine like lights uh, in a dark place. Nobody will be impressed. Nobody out there that you're hoping to influence. Nobody will be impressed by your knowledge of the Bible. Nobody will be impressed if you can tell them that the ark was 350 cubits long and 50 wide and 30 high. Nobody will be impressed by the fact that you know what John the Baptist said for breakfast and it sounds like it for dinner and for supper as well. Nobody will be impressed by that one hoot. What they will be impressed by is that you have something they don't have and they can see it in your life. So to be the church is not to be gathered here inwardly on a Sunday. It's to be out there for the rest of the week, living in such a way that people, they may not say it to your face, but they will say it in their heart, and they may indeed say it to others, "You know, there's something about them." I remember meeting in a group of perhaps 40 or 50 youngish people, and the leader said, "How many of you, in becoming a Christian, were influenced by the life of somebody else? You just saw their life and knew there was something different about them." Two thirds of those present put their hands up. It was a massive influence in their coming to faith. Was the life that they saw other people lead. So I trust that this is God's word to us this morning from this unusual part of scripture that God is calling us to be prisoners, brothers, friends, workers, beloved soldiers and churchmen. A man called Aristides once wrote a letter to the Roman Emperor Hadrian about the early Christian church said some interesting things. It would have been very interesting. Well, they seem to meet together and they talk to someone who's not there and they meet on a particular day of the week and all sorts, but they take great care of each other and, and whatever. And the last sentence in his letter was this. This is a new people and there is something divine in them. Now, as a pagan, he may have been thinking well, the gods are in them somehow. But I hope you'll be able in your mind to adapt that, that people should be saying of you, you know, this is a new person. And there's something divine in them. It's nothing to do with the fact they go to church. They may say, I know people who go to church and are no different. But there's something in them that speaks to me of the faith they seek to share with others. May God bless his word to each one of us this morning.